Welcome to the Move Against Cancer podcast, the podcast that aspires to support and inspire people to move, exercise and live an active and fulfilling life despite a cancer diagnosis. The podcast where we share the stories of ordinary people doing extraordinary things. We know that many people are scared to stay active during cancer treatment. We know that for some, cancer can take away the hope that comes from dreaming of a future. And we know many people diagnosed with cancer feel isolated and lonely. We hope that by sharing the stories of others finding their way through cancer, the Move Against Cancer podcast will provide hope, support and a sense of empowerment to anyone living with and beyond cancer. Welcome to episode nine of the Move Against Cancer podcast. My name is Gemma Hillier Moses and I'm the founder of Move Charity. So I do this every episode that I record, but I'm just going to tell you a little bit about myself because there might be somebody jumping on this episode who hasn't actually listened to any other episode before. So I love to do a bit of running. I'm currently training for the London Marathon and fingers crossed that goes ahead in October. I also love to chat, as you could probably tell from my podcast episodes, because none of them have been under 45 minutes. They've always gone a lot over, which is absolutely fine because we love talking to people. I love connecting with others and also being able to share their stories. So thank you so much to everybody who has provided such wonderful feedback. Please, 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 if you can, leave a review and subscribe to the podcast as it does really help to increase our reach and hopefully more people will listen and be super inspired by our amazing guests, their knowledge, their insights and their skills that they give across every episode that we that we do. So we would love to learn from you as our listeners um, so that we can improve when we come to our next series. So today's episode is actually the last of our first series and I'm super proud of what we as a team have achieved. So thank you so much to our fantastic guests who are given their time for free to share their stories and to inspire others. We still have so much more to learn about the podcast world, but we are looking forward to taking a little bit of a break this month and then we'll be back with series two very soon. So today I'm joined by Greg White and Greg is a former Olympian, world-renowned sports scientist and world-leading physical activity expert. He has a huge passion for exercise physiology and in particular cancer physical activity and exercise. Greg is well known for his involvement in comic relief and mentoring the success of the celebrity challenges for the past decade. To date he has helped to raise over 38 million for charity. Greg is also responsible for Eddie Izzard's 43 marathons in 51 days and David Walliam's swim across the English Channel. I literally can't wait for this talk with Greg today. Welcome to the Move Against Cancer podcast, Greg. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for inviting me on. It's an absolute honour. Thanks. We feel very honoured because you're a very, very busy man, aren't you? <laughs> it's a little bit busy, but, you know, but it's always great to be part of, of this sort of project, actually, because I think that... You know, actually, one of my big passions is this public engagement in science and, and actually this sort of dissemination of information. And I think that actually it's something that, that researchers, academics really need to work a lot harder on, not, yeah. not only in actually spreading the news, but actually translating it in such a way that people can digest it and understand and, and use it so that they can make changes to their own lives. 
Absolutely. And I think we just had a little bit of a conversation before we jumped on and I wish I'd press record because you definitely <laughs> gave some really interesting insights and hopefully we'll cover a bit of that later as well. But where, gosh, where do we actually start? Like when I was planning this interview, I was thinking we could go in so many different directions because you are just one incredibly fascinating man um, and very inspiring. So when I was reading your story, I watched some of the um, YouTube videos that you've done as well. And I thought, you know, I'm a runner myself and it made me just want to jump into endurance events. <laughs> so I think don't a lot it, of- Don't do it, don't do it. Yeah, we'll realise that from after we've done this podcast. But I think that, you know, I want to give people a background into you and your life before we move on to that cancer exercise physiology story and where we are at. Um, with that mm -hmm. at the moment so let's take us back and I just want to find out with your so you're a two times Olympian hopefully I've got that right um, <laughs> but with your journey did the like which one came first so was it your dreams and achievements going in like a training for an Olympics was it your passion for sports science and physical activity or your work for charity so which one where did it all start for you <laughs> I mean, I mean I, sport has been part of my life since a very very young age so I started off as a swimmer at the age of five um, and my dad was a boxer very good boxer uh, my mum my mum's brother was a, a, a professional footballer so you know sport yeah. I was always sort of entrenched in sport and sport was definitely my love and my passion and I think what was interesting at that time actually I was an athlete at a time where there was no money at all um, and so therefore you either studied or worked I studied and I think one of the things that really struck me was about was sort of how do I improve my performance? What, where does performance come from? You know, what, what can we do to make a difference? Um, and that sort of, you know, serendipitously, uh, serendipitously sort of coincided with the sort of creation of sports science. Um, yeah. So I did, I did an undergrad in sports science. Uh, I, I started in 1986. I'm giving away my age now. Um, <laughs> where but, did you do but, that one? Uh, well, what is now Brunel University? Oh, so I was going to say, was, I was wondering if it was Loughborough. <laughs> no, but so, like, there were there only three or four places in the country that actually did it. And and to me, what was always interesting at the time is that when you said you did sports science, there was the caveat that you had to tell people what that meant. Yeah. Uh, whereas nowadays, everybody understands that. Um, and so I, I went from there, undergrad, I then went... Um, I was, I was training obviously at the same time, uh, went out to the 92 Olympics. Then from the, the from Barcelona, I actually flew directly out to uh, the US and I did a master's degree in human performance, uh, which really sparked my interest in the sort of the global perspective of, of how we can improve human performance across the entire spectrum. Um, so I spent a couple of years out there. And then when I came back, I, I, I started my PhD, completed my PhD at St. George's Hospital Medical School where I had a particular interest and, and quite contemporary with Christian Eriksson. Um, my, my PhD was on sudden cardiac death in young athletes. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, so, so quite contemporary now, but, but yeah. um, an, an interesting area. An interesting area, actually, particularly when it comes to the cancer journey around cardiotoxicity and, and, and the impact of, of some chemotherapies on the heart. Um, but then from there, I then became director of research at the British Olympic Medical Centre. I then went on to be the director of uh, science and research for the English Institute of Sport. Uh, and then I, I sort of I, I moved sideways. I'm not sure I moved sideways, but I just moved along the continuum, actually. And I, I had a much greater interest in the general population and then set yeah. up my, my clinic on Harley Street, um, at which point I came into contact with the London Oncology Centre um, with uh, a lovely, incredible lady called Michelle Cohen, 
who was running a living world program at the London Oncology Centre. Um, and then so effectively what we did then, we, I, I spent a, a great deal more time away from elite sport into human performance in, in, in let's say, normals, if we want to put it like yeah. that. Uh, but also in pathophysiology and disease, um, particularly around things like uh, heart and, and lung disease, um, but but then more latterly into into cancer and cancer and exercise, and that, that's really sort of how it's sort of developed. And and I find myself here wow. on your show. <laughs> yeah, well, that's you know to me that's just such a fascinating journey because I think it it highlights a few things really. Like the first is actually like your goals and your achievements going to to Olympics in the modern pentathlon we point out if people are wondering what sport but that also ran in parallel with your passion for learning and research and study and you were still able to go on to achieve huge things in both those areas which often people really struggle with so I think it you know does show how you can do both if you want to you don't have to just dedicate yourself to sport and that's it actually what you learn from the elite side of sport can then go into your learnings and research and your career yeah and i think to me actually it's a mute point really because because i think athlete welfare you know currently is, is you know high on the agenda and i think what's really important for athletes now and certainly one thing that i talk to athletes an awful lot about is actually you know you've got to have something beyond the sport yeah. um you know sports a very short career you know if you're lucky you might make it through to mid-30s but that still leaves you you know another another 30 years at least in in, in the work sector um, yeah. and you know and even longer in life so i think i think it is actually important that you do have multiple strings to the bow so that it gives you longevity in whatever it is that you're working in absolutely yeah i think that's incredible advice especially for the younger generation who mm. i think the problem is at the moment this is going a bit off topic but we have things like social media and instagram that see this full-time athlete life as something that people should be having but actually you're like you say you can have interests in different areas develop your career as well as your your sport and then they can place very different values and you can achieve achieve both things which is yeah which is, yeah, incredible if you can do that. So let's talk about endurance sport. So we know that you will have a big passion, I think. <laughs> Would you call it a passion, an obsession? <laughs> obsession, probably, yeah. <laughs> Some sort yeah. of madness for endurance sport. So coming from modern pentathlon, how did you move over to have that passion and that desire? And also we can, you know, you've helped people in some massive challenges and we're going to go on to that shortly. But why endurance sport? What attracted you to do it? I, t- I mean, it's an interesting one, really. I think, I think to some extent, it's about challenge, and and I think you know, from a personal perspective, I've sort of, I've challenged myself at the the short duration work, um, yeah. and and I think I, I just found the endurance and ultra endurance an intriguing, an, an intriguing area because it, it yes, obviously it's physical, but there's a huge amount of psychological um, yeah. that, that comes into play, and and then actually technical, tactical. Uh, nutritional all of those other factors that come into play so it's one of those things it's not just about swimming for a long period or running for a long period actually it's really quite complex Uh, and I think it was probably that dual aspect where it was pushing me to a limit that I've never been to before but also the sort of the the sort of academic intrigue if you like you know the sort of nuance of it and how you enhance performance Um, and, and you know again sort of luckily it came at a time when endurance and ultra endurance became a thing i mean you yeah know, if you look back 20 years that those sort of things didn't really exist you know only for the in the very niche areas for the very limited few whereas now we see it you know 
the, the Lanzarote Ironman, for example, at the weekend, you know, hundreds stroke thousands of competitors who've qualified yeah. to get there. You know, so there's just been this this exponential rise in, in endurance and ultra endurance. Um, and so it came at a good time. Yeah, absolutely. And we know that, so most of the listeners, um, so my co-host or the co-founder of our 5K Way initiative and um, one of the trustees of our charity, Lucy Gossage, is also one of the winners of the Norseman, <laughs> I think last year, the last one's happened, um, Norseman Triathlon. And you have done that in your 50s as well. And apparently it's supposed to be one of the toughest triathlons on the planet. Um, <laughs> so what I want to ask you is, what did you because I think this is really interesting because a lot of people that listen to our podcast do like to challenge themselves or looking at things that they can do um differently, even if it's not as big as something like that. But what do you learn about yourself doing those sort of challenges and learn <laughs> about yourself during it and also in the preparation for it? <laughs> a lot. <laughs> the very the very simple answer is a lot. I, I, you know, I, I, it's interesting because I think you know you, you you coin it right because it's actually about the preparation i mean you know these sort of events i mean they are brutal i mean the yeah. norseman the norseman itself the toughest triathlon on the planet as they dub it um is is purgatory from start do, to finish do we need um, to give lucy a bit more respect then you absolutely <laughs> do i mean anybody who can complete it you know is doing well and then it, there's a race inside the race so you're trying to get what they call it the norseman black it's the black t-shirt which is for the top 160 160 finishers um, wow. you know, so I mean, it's it just it is a, a really brutal, uh, a brutal assault, both physically and psychologically. Yeah. Um, but I think it's actually the training that's required to deliver that is where an awful lot of that learning takes place. And and I think you know, I always coin this phrase: nothing good comes easy. And, yeah. and it's absolutely true. Is that you know you have got to work to achieve these things. And I think much of the learning, you know, by the time you get to the event, the big event itself, you should have learned just about everything that you need to learn yeah. through the experience of training but it is you know i mean it, it, it is so complex there's so many different areas but i think the, the biggest battle is actually a personal battle in, inside your own mind and, and i think that we have this i have this approach that you know more is in you and i think sometimes you know and again it probably pertinent to our conversation later on but i think sometimes we are led to believe that we cannot um and i think changing yeah. that mindset to believe that we can um, and then using various strategies to make sure that you can move yourself along and progressively along. You don't just suddenly, you know, become better at it. Um, I think that, that's the greatest learning. And, and I think you, that then translates into other areas of life is that you think actually at the start of this journey, I never believed that I could achieve that. But actually with the right approach, with, with dedication, with commitment, all of a sudden you do start to achieve. You do start to get success. And I think that translates into other areas of life, which make a big difference. Yeah, and that, and that's really yeah, really good advice there. And I think I've heard you talk about before that how important goal setting is. And I've done you know, we've done some workshops over the last year um, for our Move charity and to educate people. And goal setting was one of them that went down really well because actually how important that can be even if you're somebody with an illness or a disease um that you're actually living through you're going to go through treatment for cancer actually it's so important to have something to aim for short term and long term and you don't have to be ridiculously challenges big challenges some people want to but how important is that for you on a personal level but then also for people you work with I mean, it's instrumental I mean success yeah. is you know success is not a chance event you won't it doesn't just happen. Um, I, I think planning is absolutely crucial. 
So you have yeah. to plan for success. Um, and I think what underpins that planning is goal setting. Uh, and and it, it, in that goal setting, you've got short-term goals, medium-term goals, and then the long-term goal, whatever that big goal is that you're looking to achieve. And, and if, the way to think about it is they're stepping stones. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, the short-term goals, invariably, that they are the stepping stones that are really close together. They're not big changes in, in behavior. They're not big gains in physical conditioning or, you know, the changes in lifestyle. What they are is they're very small changes. But, but again, what, what we are doing is we're, those small steps are accruing progressively and so it's amazing how you know small steps can make a big difference once yeah. you accumulate them together and so those small steps become these these medium term goals and then those medium term goals then progress into this long-term goal and crucial to that so making sure you've got the right uh, the right goals in place is absolutely fundamental and then it's about planning how you're going to achieve each of those goals as you go through and, and that you know that 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 to me, what it, what it never does is guarantee success, but what yeah. it does do is it improves your, your, your the possibility of success. And I think what's really important is people often see, um, they look towards athletes and elite sports people as inspiration and they just think it's like this linear curve where it just goes straight up. And actually, I remember seeing the diagram of the squiggle to success. And success is also just specific to you and your goals. So it doesn't have to be, you know, winning an Olympic medal or going to Olympics. It could just be walk running a 5K or, you know, moving a little bit more during the day. But actually, it's not just a straight line of achieving that goal. There will be ups and downs. So how important is flexibility in that goal planning and just being adaptable as well? No, I, I think that's a really good point. And, and it is, it, you know, it is, it's a movable feast. You know, I think the danger is that you can actually create an, an incredible plan, really intricate, very detailed, and then stick to it rigidly. Uh, and, and the problem with that is that, that what it doesn't take into account is is changes, environmental changes, personal changes. You know, there, there are so many things that, that, that can come in the way. I mean, I think there was a lovely Zen proverb that said that, that, that barriers, uh, barriers are, are not barriers to the path. They are part of the path, you know. So I think the idea, I love that. Rem- you know, just remember that, that, that we will come up against them all the time. You know, what, what the skill is, is to understand what those barriers are and how we get over them. Yeah, uh, and, and that, and, and again, that comes down to planning. But I think you're absolutely right. Is that what you have to be is flexible in that approach, and that doesn't mean to say you're giving up. No, uh, you know, certain things as you go along. It what you are doing is you are just adapting to the environment in which you find yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we'll come on to now around. I think support is incredibly important for you, and I know that you've set up, you know, your clinic in London around how do we support people in the best way possible, and we're trying to look at that in terms of cancer care and you know exercise physiology and prescription in the cancer care pathway and what does that support model look like but I'd be really interested just to dial it back a little bit in terms of you've supported some incredible people so a lot of celebrities doing some epic challenging and raised over 30 million for charity which is amazing but celebrities are normal people they might not seem it but they are normal people and they're not necessarily Olympians or, you know, they don't have some sort of huge physical talent that, you know, you might have had, you definitely had to go to the Olympics. So one of them, I think you supported David Walliam for swimming across the channel and I know Davina McCaw as well. And I think that in one of those um, videos that I watched, I think Davina was crying her eyes out before she was, um, <laughs> she was doing one of her challenges, which shows how human they are. Like they face the same challenges, barriers, yeah. scares, um, like fears that we would. So what 
what do you think one question I want to ask is what do you think they need to develop so physically and psychologically to have in their like kind of toolbox to bring out during those challenges because you've obviously gone through some groundwork with them first to get them there I mean, it's, it's an interesting one because often the question is, what's the difference between an Olympian and a, and a, and a celebrity? And, and I think, honestly, very little, yeah. except, except where their skill set lies. So instead of running around a track or riding a bike or, or show jumping or whatever it is, they happen to be a stand-up comedian or, or a TV presenter or a writer. You know? So in, in essence, it's just the skill set is different, firstly. Yeah. I think, but underneath that, what they have is some of the traits that you really do need. And that is things like tenacity. I mean, the, the one thing that you do find with an entertainer is that they truly understand what highs and lows mean. You, you yeah. know, it, and I think it, it, much like it is when you watch an Olympian, what, what we do is we'll watch the Olympics this summer. Uh, and for some of those athletes, many people never have seen them before. Uh, and, and all they see is them at, at the at the end of their journey you know at this at this at this end goal at, you know at their long-term goal uh, and, and they mount the podium and you think well you know that, that was great but what you haven't seen is the 12 years of absolute dedication to their to their cause to actually reach that point uh, and I think the same is true of, of entertainers is that you know we, we see them on telly and we think that that's, they just arrived they rocked up to the studio and someone said you come on stage and present the show you know <laughs> yeah but you know it's taken them years to get there and in that process they have had failures uh, they've had you know they, they have had you know re- they've worked on really poor shows they've had they, they've done badly on some shows um but being being tenacious enough to get through that I think is absolutely crucial and certainly when it comes to physical challenges tenacity yeah. is, is really important they are dedicated to it you know so they bring they bring tenacity and dedication um, and they bring commitment and 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 those three things really are, are absolutely fundamental for me when i'm working with them the, yeah. the, the interesting thing is that there's there's only one thing that you cannot that that you cannot develop in somebody and that is desire you know they That's have to want to do it and, and yeah. I think this is for for any of us actually, and whatever it is that we are facing, is that because what we're what we're what I'm trying to 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 bring about is behaviour change. One of the most difficult things to do in humans is to change yeah. behaviour, as we all know. Yeah. I mean, you know, we all we all understand that. But the first the first place for that is about desire. You've got to want to change. You've got to yeah. want to achieve what it is that you are you are embarking on. And I think once you've got that. Then, then what you can then do is you can actually develop these other traits. You can you can develop things like desire and commitment and motivation. All of those things are as part of the planning process and the goal setting. You can actually build on those. Uh, but fundamentally, yeah. right at the very beginning, desire is absolutely crucial. Because um, how do so, you, I find I find it fascinating with behaviour change? Because you're right, it take can take a long time, and actually, the person who's wanting to do something or doesn't want to do things, something at the start needs to come around to wanting to do things. But there is always something inside of everybody that that desire can be brought out of you, but isn't quite there yet. So you might listen to a podcast and be inspired to do something that you may never have thought, but don't dare to take that step. So how can we maybe develop? Can we develop that desire or do you, do they, do people have to come all the way around to it themselves? It's interesting because we're, I mean, we're almost talking semantics, aren't we? Because inspire versus desire. I mean, yeah. actually different, actually different things. I mean, I think we can inspire people to do things, but I think, but still you have to want to, to make that change. Yeah. Um, now, now I think, 
one of the big one of the the most obvious stumbling blocks you know the, the great example of this is something like new year's resolutions is that yeah. people actually do have a desire to make a change and, and invariably there are a couple of things that happen i think the first thing is and this sort of speaks to goal setting really one is that they target the wrong outcome so it's yeah. I, I want to lose weight well it, it, the problem with something like that is it's nebulous you know what how much weight is enough you know, yeah. have you got a target weight that you want to lose? Okay, so then some people will actually think, okay, well, I've got this target weight that I want to use. And often it'll be something like three stone by the end of January. You know, and you look at that, you think, well, it, it, the timeliness of that, the ability to actually deliver that, and, and, you know, and, and unless you are removing a limb, uh, it, it's very unlikely you're actually going to be able to achieve that. Yeah. And I, so I think, you know, it, it's, it is about how you structure the goals. And I think, some, I think one of, the, one of the interesting things for me about the sort of human psyche is that what we want is we want things now. You know, there's an instancy to life. Mm. And so I, or I desire to make that change. I desire to achieve this, but I want it by the end of the week. Otherwise, I'm giving up. Um, yeah. And I think what we've got to do is just change our mindsets, um, change our mindset and start thinking about these short term goals and actually just really structure the goals in such a way that what we're looking for, it, they will be small steps, small improvements, yeah. but it's it's the, the, the accrue of those, those small improvements, bringing those small improvements together that will make the difference. But what that means is that it will take longer than you think. Yeah. And I think, and so making sure, so in, in your own mind, instead of thinking in a period of days or weeks, thinking periods of months and years, and you're much more likely to achieve it as long as you've got the structure right to keep you motivated throughout that. Yeah, and we talk a lot about focusing on the process as well. So actually, what you find is once you've achieved your goal, you look back at the process and the process can be the most amazing thing because you learn, you know, even if you have ups and downs, they can be your periods of growth, actually, when you have your really down parts or you hit barriers and you hit the struggles. But the process is actually where you can find most enjoyment and most learning from. And actually, when you hit the goal, you often just want to move on to the next one. So it's um, <laughs> it's kind of like that catch 22 that probably, you know, you want to think about your goal 5% of the time, but actually the process is is most important and just a bit off topic I was listening I'm not sure if you've listened to the high performance podcast before with um Jake and oh, I can't remember Damien <laughs> and that that podcast is brilliant but they interviewed on Monday Ben Francis who's the um Gymshark founder and he's you know if anybody wants to listen to that incredible I've got no links to them but an incredible interview but he talked about from a business point of view if I'd only focused on what I wanted to achieve in one year or I wanted to get success by um the second year I would have walked away from the business because I had to be in it for the long term and for me that was the same with sport exercise because collectively lifetime lifestyle changes you have to be in it for the long term because otherwise like we've seen you know you see so many people give up after a month because it takes 90 days to form a habit anyway doesn't it so yep. you know you are battling in that first 90 days with psychological barriers as well as physical ones and it's about yep. finding the right tools and strategies for you and building a support team around you that can help you achieve your goal yeah yeah absolutely right I mean, going back to New Year's resolutions, average duration of a New Year's resolution is 21 days. Yeah. You know, yeah so that, that, that tells you everything you need to know. And But I think but that, that's not that they are unachievable. I think, and this is where, I think this is where we have to be very careful is that I think if you take the wrong approach, uh, then then what you start to believe. And, and the, the, the problem is that once, once you've experienced, and failures are very, you know, it's, it's a mute point and we can sort of talk about that, but, 
once you've experienced it, the, the, the expectation is then that, that when you try it again, you're going to see failure again. And so it becomes self-fulfilling is that you never yeah. then enter it in, in the belief that you can actually achieve it. Um, and so getting it right, getting it right the first time is really important. Or uh, as um, um, Einstein coined it beautifully. Uh, and what he said is that stupidity is repeating the same thing over and over again and expecting a different outcome. Yeah. And I think that coin, that coins behavior change really don't just, there's no point doing exactly. If, if you haven't been successful in, in an approach that you've, that you've made, then what you need to do is change that approach. There's no point yeah. just repeating it because all, all that will come about is the same failure that you see on a regular basis, change the approach, change the plan. And, and you're much more likely to see uh, uh, achievement and success. Yeah, very good advice there. So I want to go back onto it a little bit before we move on to exercise cancer perspectivity. So the celebrities you work with in sports relief, who were the favourite ones? <laughs> Are you allowed to say that? <laughs> I'm going a bit deep now. <laughs> oh, man. Well, look, I, I've looked after 32 sport relief and combat relief challenges. So, and that, Wow. I, 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 I've never counted it, but it's probably over 70 to 80 celebrities. Um, and you know, I, I love them all because it, 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 the one great thing about it is, look, they are there. They are not being paid to do what they do. Uh, and many of the challenges, uh, particularly the solo challenges, are brutal. I mean, they are grueling. It, 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 these are not challenges made for telly. Uh, yeah. it, you know, it, they are properly, you know, properly challenging. Um, so, you know, I always take my hat off to them for for effectively what they do is that at the beginning of the project is that they they give me. They give me their reputation, uh, and and that, that's why yeah. I take it so seriously. My job is to is to maintain, you know, is to bring about success. Yes, um, number one, you know, to cross the finish line. The second thing is to make sure they do that, and they are in, they remain in good health when they do that. But the other thing to always remember is actually that that people will reflect on on how they did it and, and why they did it, and so actually their reputation does uh, uh, is really important in that process. But I think you know, the short answer to your question is I think it's always the solo guys, I think, who are just remarkable. So, you know, yeah. David Williams, Eddie Izzard, John Bishop, um, Davina McCall, uh, Zoe Ball was amazing. Uh, Joe Brand's incredible, her walk from Hull to Liverpool. Um, you know, so, yeah, I mean, they're brilliant. They're all brilliant. But the, but the solo guys are really something special. Hats off to them, yeah. And yeah. and who, what, which one's the most epic challenge that you would look at personally yourself and go geez that's uh that's just tougher than tough <laughs> <laughs> you know i think probably i mean I, I, it's probably with david and i think swimming the channel and then and then we swam the thames um you know that was it, what, what was interesting about that and i think it, it brings us back to sort of our early conversation that is that when we started the channel I, I cannot tell you how many people and that includes an awful lot of the open swimming community at the time who said impossible never be able to do it absolutely impossible you'll really? never achieve it and of course you know after 33 weeks just 33 weeks of training uh, he did it and that doesn't that's not saying it was yeah. easy but yeah. it shows the dedication and commitment and tenacity that he has but the great thing is that five that was in 2006 five years later we swam the thames uh, and on the thames challenge we swam the equivalent of the channel 20 miles a day Every day wow. for seven for seven consecutive days. Now that is that's something. Oh my, else. that's <laughs> mind blowing, isn't it? Wow. It is, yeah. But it shows. I think to some extent, what what it does, it articulates really the the, the point, and that is that it, it's only impossible until it's achieved. Yeah. And, and so I think in in your own mind, if you think to yourself, you know, I just it's impossible. There's no way it's going to happen. 
that's only because you haven't achieved it yet. And when you achieve it, you'll you'll suddenly realise that it is achievable. Because you think that, like, you know, David swim in the channel and, and the challenge afterwards. He wasn't a swimmer before, was he? No. no. So that's where it gives a lot of people, I think it should give a lot of people hope and inspiration. So I think sometimes people see, oh, it's a celebrity, you know, they can do it. Well, why can they do it if they've not been a swimmer <laughs> before? How have they just gone on to be not a swimmer to achieve those challenges, which seem so impossible, don't they? And, you know, everyone's saying, oh, I don't think you can do it to actually achieve it. And like you say, a lot of it's down to that mindset and that perseverance, the dedication, the desire. And we can all get, ordinary people can get that out of themselves. And all you've got to do, I think, sometimes is take that first step to just not be afraid. I think probably actually too many of us are a little bit of afraid of what might happen or for failing. But actually, if you don't try, you'll never know. Yeah, absolutely true. And I think the other interesting thing, I think, when it comes to celebrities is that that for me, I mean, I I think they are truly inspirational cross population Um, because because of everything you've just described there, where they've come from. And, but I think what, what's really interesting is the translation of that into a, into a patient population. Yeah. Um, is that, that w- the one interesting thing about m- many of the celebrities I've worked with is, is that they are w- what we would call it sounds a bit harsh, but they are physically illiterate. Um, it, it, this is not it's not just the fact that they're not a swimmer or a bike rider or a runner or, or a rower, whatever the, the the challenge is. It's actually the fact that they've never really been physically active they never they've never they've never asked themselves the questions about their physical capabilities and actually yeah. in a patient population that's very similar as well and so i think you know the, the one thing that a patient population can take away from those challenges is the fact that these guys come into these things having had no background in in sport and exercise i mean yeah. I, and when i say that i mean really no background um and, and yet look at what they they can achieve so i think i think that that's, that's the thing to remember is that it's, it's this is not about what you know to some extent how good you know how much exercise you were doing previously and and what your experience yeah. is you know it's, it's it's effectively turning a new chapter and challenging yourself because as we said earlier more is in you there's a lot more in you than you, than you would at first believe that you could you can extract if you ask the right questions yeah and I think what you said at the end there about asking the right questions I think a lot of the time people just assume that it's not they can't achieve things or it's not you know this isn't for them and it's nothing this doesn't happen to people like me but where you probably learned from doing some of those challenges with celebrities was about creating a support team around you and I think some people think that it's impossible to create a support team around it where do I look where do I go but actually a bit of planning and a bit of research can bring you a lot of a long way in creating that right support team for you so how important is that and also what what type of support team do you want around you when you're trying to achieve your goals and your challenges well the easiest way to coin it is that nothing great is ever achieved alone yeah and i think you, you can look at any any incredible achievement across time and what you will see is that there is a team that sits behind the the, the performer and the individual always without yeah. any shadow of doubt and so I, I think you know to assume that that you know you've got one of the biggest challenges in your life and that somehow you're going to be able to achieve that on in isolation on your own I mean it, 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 that's the wrong place to start what you have got to do is actually make sure that you bring the right team around you and, and equally I think what to some extent it's not complex I think when you watch elite sport you sort of think well I need a 
a, a biomechanist and a physiologist and a psychologist and a nutritionist, you know, lots of ologists in there. Yeah. <laughs> which, you know, you thought, oh, blimey, it's, you know, that's, that's going to be really complicated and expensive, but it's not. You know, I think actually the, the first place to look is close to home. And, yeah. and I think that, that making sure that what, you've, what you surround yourself with, you know, so for me, what, there's nothing more important than having, having the support of my wife and my, I've got three children and my th- three children to understand what the challenge is, you know. Yeah. And, and I think once, once they are bought into it, what they then do is support you in that, in that approach. So, so that they don't that effectively, you know, when you're having a bad day, when you're particularly fatigued, when you've had a great day, you know, what, what you can, you can share in that and, and they understand that and they can support that. So I think, you know, the first place to start with a team is, is at home with friends and family, making sure that they are your support structure and they are so in, they're so important in, in that process. And I think then it's about just understanding what, what your knowledge is and, and where you need more knowledge. You know, yeah. so, so what, what are the particular areas where you need support in, you know, so, so, you know, for example, in, in, you know, the exercise and cancer journey, actually having an exercise physiologist who understands cancer, understands exercise, who then actually can work with you um, is really important yeah. as part of that. So I think it, it's, it's start, start very simple, um, start close to home and then just, evolve your team as you go through and, and the by far the most important thing about that team is that is that it's not it's not about having the best or the most expensive or the notionally the best or most expensive it's actually what works for you yeah um, and and making and don't you know be brave enough that if, if somebody's not somebody you know you've, you've taken on somebody as part of your team and they're just not working for you then you know it, 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 there's nothing wrong with changing you know again be flexible in that approach make sure you've got the team that works for you and you're much more likely to deliver success yeah because I think you're right around that sometimes it's not you know we get caught up in the science behind um you know achieving our goals and what we need to do but actually it's a lot to do with kind of mentorship finding out what's right for you personality wise like you're saying about the family actually having them involved and understanding your challenge but also the challenges and the barriers that you face help them to keep you accountable but then to support you when you need to because I think you know with exercise and cancer and I was diagnosed with cancer in 2012 and there wasn't any support there at all which is why we set up the charity to help you know start that journey and conversation about providing support but it was a case of everyone just wanted to wrap you up in cotton wool and that wasn't the right approach because no one understood what your goals were no one understood what you want to achieve and why it was important for you and I remember doing the great north running between treatment and the amount of messages that I got saying you don't need to prove this to anyone I was like well I'm not proving it to anyone but I'm proving it to myself but I'd also like to like to do this but having people like my family who actually really understood never I didn't they didn't question it once they understood the goal they understood the the plan behind it and how I was going to get to that start line on chemotherapy and going through treatment and actually it ended up being successful because that plan and that support team were in place and there wasn't an exercise physiology there wasn't a cancer instructor which I would you know I'd recommend now because I'd have loved to have that person there to support me but it did show that that simple what seemed a simple support team got me to where I wanted to get to and achieve one of my goals during one of the hardest periods of my life yeah. um so. what's interesting there is that you, you articulate it well that is that I mean, it's incumbent upon us to create that team, but also inform that team. I, yeah. I think sometimes you know, just to expect other people to understand what your challenges are 
you know, or, or understand why you're taking on this challenge or, or what your goals are. You know, yeah. it doesn't happen by osmosis. You know, you've got to sit down with people and talk to them and, and make sure that, that, that they understand what it is that you're trying to achieve. And I think if you do that, you have a much, much more functional team around you who actually can yeah. support you properly. And it can be scary, like talking about your goals or, you know, often people write them down, but it can be, it can be scary and daunting for somebody who doesn't really share, you know, what they want to achieve in their life. But I think from this advice, it's so important, like you say, to do that because that's a big step in the right direction for you. But then, yeah. And again, that, that comes progressively as well, though. You know, start with the short term goal. What are you mm. looking to do this week? You know, yeah. we have this little, little thing and, and it, in our house, you know, um, particularly when, when somebody's taking on a challenge, put it on the fridge and it says what the, what the week's plan is. And so people, and, and it, it, it gives you lots of different things. Number one is everybody knows what the plan is. So on Monday morning, when you're not in the house or you've got up early, they look at the fridge and they see where you are. Um, but add on top of that, when you tick that off of the week, what you then get is positive affirmation from people in, in your team who come around and say, oh, you, you did that. It's fantastic. Well done. You know, and also you think, oh, hello. yeah, brilliant. You know, I've actually yeah. achieved and, and it is, so you, you, what you don't need to do is, you, know, you, don't, you don't need to spread it around the whole kitchen in the, in the yeah. entire the entire plan, you know, from start to finish. Just, the, just again, those micro, those micro changes that you're looking for and just bring people on slowly. And actually what you'll find is that people then, gradually get behind you and you have this crescendo through to the to the to the big goal as well so it, it that's all these things are about little steps I love that I love that insight because I think that's what people do you know when you listen to a podcast and somebody gives you that insight and you go away and you can action that so we'll be all going with something <laughs> on the fridge because it's true like you you know for you personally as well you work with people one-to-one -one, but actually you've you know for endurance events you have to be the most organized fitted all your training yeah. your life your family so those little insights are probably what people will take away yeah and I think I think that you know it is that it's the classic I haven't got enough time um, and, and generally, I think, you know, I'll never forget what my dad used to say. And that was, you've got to make time, which as, as yeah. a kid was incredibly infuriating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as, as you get older, what you realize is it's not necessarily making time, it's structuring time. Yeah. And I think if, if you structure it well enough, then it's not about being, you know, obsessive about it, but it's just about, you know, it, it, to my mind, what it is, I look at the diary and I think, right, I've got a space there. Uh, and I've got X, you know, an, an hour space there. This is what I'm going to do in the hour. I write it down. And what it does, it just says, it's shouting back at me. You've got to do it then because it's the yeah. only time you're going to be able to do it. So you either do it then or you don't do it at all. And and that effectively is that sort of internal motivator saying, yeah, I've got to go. I've got, I don't, I can't, I don't really fancy it, but yeah. I've only got an hour to do it. And so I think, you know, those little tricks, I mean, it's the, it, to my mind, it's often the simple stuff which really works most effectively because it's the easiest to action. And it's the easiest to keep up with as, as you go through. It's, yeah. It's, when you overcomplicate it, it just becomes so cumbersome and arduous yeah. that effectively you just thought, oh, you think, no, you just give it up. Keep it simple. Yeah, I know people are, yeah, people look for those, you know, extraordinary things that you need to do to organize everything. But I, you know, I, I do the same as you. I use Google Calendar. It's my lifesaver for work <laughs> and life and training. So my training goes in and I know that if I don't do that at that time and I'm not going to get it done. And it's just a game changer for me, but it's just Google Calendar. <laughs> That's all it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
it's or not a complex. calendar on your kitchen yeah let's not yeah. overcomplicate it no. brilliant <laughs> yeah really no really fascinating and i think you know there's so much people can already take out of this but we're going to go a deep dive a little bit more into specifically cancer exercise physical activity so we had a little conversation. So I'm going to imagine that I don't know anything about it because I think this is the easiest way of answering questions, even though, you know, I've founded the charity and the cancer, um, cancer rehab instructor as well. But where are we right now with cancer exercise and physical activity? Like, where are we in the space? Are we at a good point that it's being talked about enough that like hospital level, government level, or are we in still a bit of a hole with it? Well, I, it's interesting. I think sort of chronologically, if you look at where we are compared to 20 years ago, we are in a completely different stratosphere. I mean, yeah. things have moved on so much since that time. You know, at, at the time, I remember you know talking to people about exercising patients with cancer, and and it was almost abhorrent. What, what are you talking about? You can't exercise while you've got cancer um, because either it'll it'll exacerbate the cancer, or the fact is that there's no way that that. That, that cancer patients undergoing treatment can exercise are ridiculous. Yeah. Um, so I think you know, we've moved an awful, awfully long way from there. And, and, what, and importantly, the movement has come from evidence base. It's come from research. So, so what, if you take a look at the amount of research in exercise and cancer, what you'll see is that it's, it's increased dramatically since that time. Uh, to the point now where I think, you know, is absolutely in common parlance that, 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 physical activity and exercise at all stages in cancer. So talking about cancer prevention uh, during cancer treatment and then cancer rehabilitation, it is common parlance in each of those stages um, uh, to, to integrate physical activity and exercise into that program. Uh, I think along, alongside that, that research, and it's a, it, we call it burgeoning research, it's sort of developing, but, but we're starting to get more and more insight into it. And we've just finished a, another big study uh, just recently in the area, which again w will be world leading, for, sort of world first, which is the great thing for researchers in this area that because it's so new, uh, yeah. you, there are still lots of things to be discovered. But I think add on top of that, you know, the third sector. If you think about the charity sector now, you know, Macmillan and, and their work um, around cancer and exercise, uh, and and also things like Cam Rehab. Now, what we're yeah. starting to understand: not only do we understand that exercise and cancer is a value. Um, I think that the medical community, oncologists, surgeons, et cetera, have understood the importance of it as well. And so, therefore, the promotion of it uh, is, is much higher than it has ever been before. Uh, I think also what, we, what we've got now adjunct to that is, is a, a process through which people like yourself uh, can actually become instructors in supporting cancer patients for exercise it is a specialist area and yeah. it does re require specialist advice um, but there are those training programs now available um, and, and currently we're, we're, i'm working on a, a multinational project around clinical exercise physiology which will include cancer but also things like heart disease pulmonary disease frailty falls um, type 2 diabetes obesity all of those type of things where we bring exercise specialists who can yeah. work in clinical environments so i think we are in an incredible space right now um and, and it, it, it absolutely tried to say it but i think as a cancer sufferer um i, I think you know it, it's a much more positive space to be in currently yeah. because because there is so much support and and so much greater knowledge in supporting people with cancer yeah. uh, around the area of physical activity and exercise 
And how far do you think we're off? So cardiac rehab is obviously, you know, integrated into the care pathway in hospitals. Um, there's obviously pockets and big pockets of work, you know, with like the Safe Fit. We do work with 5K Away and our Move Online program at Millen. Um, so, but, but we've not got a joint up approach from an NHS point of view or a clinical point of view. How far are we off that? Um, there are obviously some hospitals like the Christie's that are doing that. Um, how far are we off that in terms of supporting people with cancer? So it's a really interesting question. <laughs> yeah, it's a big question. <laughs> it's, well, it's, it's probably an entire an entire podcast in itself. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, it, it's it's an incredibly complicated process uh, to to have it embedded into standard healthcare. I think yeah. I think that, that that's the key to it, and 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 because it's a, a complex path, it, it invariably is a long path to get to that point. Um, I think we've, de- we've definitely started along that path. Yeah. Um, but I think that there is still much work to be done because I think what, what we've got to do is we've got to change ch- uh, all sorts of things. We've got to change commissioning. You know, in other words, someone's got to pay for it. Yeah. Um, we've, got, we've, got, we've got to fundamentally create the structure within which people can sit. I, th- I think, you know, what, as you quite rightly say, interestingly enough, in things like cardiac rehab, neuro rehab, uh, pulmonary rehab, that there, are, there are frameworks around which we can develop and build the cancer framework for, for rehabilitation. And in, without any shadow of doubt, prehabilitation, to my mind, yeah. is absolutely critical as well. <clears throat> um, so I think, you know, we, uh, there's still some way to go, but at the same time, I think um, I think that there is a, a lot more knowledge and understanding within the system, which means that I think it will accelerate, number one. I think number two is that, you know, sadly, the the... the absolutely negative effect of COVID uh, on the increase in misdiagnoses of cancer will actually increase the importance of this discussion uh, it, it, from a healthcare perspective, because what we what we would definitely need to do is provide greater support uh, for cancer sufferers as we move forward yeah. um, uh, in order to improve the quality of care that, that, w- that we provide. So I think, you know, to some extent, it, it's, it's a good time i put that in inverted commas yeah but to 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 accelerate this debate and make sure that we get it in in the system yeah and i think you're right there's a lot of joint up conversations and partnerships going and it's only going to push that further forward because it's come a long way since i was you know diagnosed as a young person in 2012 and the difference now is actually consultants and healthcare professionals are actually talking about it and there's still some work to do on you know act healthcare professionals that are more active often talk to their patients in those teachable moments and those that aren't still need to be pushed that little bit more but like you say we're a lot further ahead than we were 10 20 years ago but how is the so before we go into your research I'm really interested to talk about your research how is the impact of COVID so I know we spoke um, a little bit earlier about that lack of importance on physical activity and health um, in terms of looking at, you know, leisure centres that provide that support for people with cancer, what's the knock-on effect of them being restricted or closed during that period? Just for that, I remember you saying just for the one disease, there was a big impact. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, it's not over-exaggerated to say it's devastating. Yeah. Um, I, I think the, the fitness and leisure sector is absolutely essential 
um, across the board. So, so when it comes to physical activity, physical activity promotion, the provision of facilities, when we talk about things like learning to swim, a million children missed out on learning to swim during COVID, uh, during the, the you know the lockdowns that we've had. All of those things have have a ramification. But I think one of the key things, particularly when it comes to things like cancer, is that from a clinical perspective, that over two thirds of prehabilitation and rehabilitation take place in the health uh, and leisure sector so at, yeah. at facilities using fitness professionals within that sector as well uh, and so obviously with the closure of those that meant that prehabilitation and rehabilitation ceased it stopped to exist you know yeah. and, and granted you know there was an, a, an awful lot of work to bring it online and to support people online but actually my, to my mind i think you know, one of the things that we often forget about the role of physical activity it's not just about physical mental and emotional health it's also about social health social, yeah. and, and actually that social interaction is so important for people because that actually that can drive physical mental and emotional health alongside it um so it, it has been devastating but again you know as as we've just spoken i think the, the positive is that as we as we are now reopen and start to reopen society um alongside projects that that you're running for example and and others mean that actually access to qualified educated specialist staff at these centers is going to start to grow exponentially yeah. as well so i think again it's it's it hasn't been good but it is an opportunity where we can make a big difference going forward yeah and the demand is just there more than ever as well and i think it's a case of um yeah just you know recognizing that that from a organizational point of view that you know the funding does need to come with that because like you say there's been so many um you know later diagnosis of cancer and undetected and you know, there's going to be a lot of strain on the system and that physical activity exercise and um sport are going to play a huge part in that coping with the the treatment and also the recovery as well and prehabilitation like you were talking about so let's talk about your research greg um what research have you you've just published um some research so can you tell us what exactly that is and the kind of thought process behind doing the research and then learnings from that research as well so so uh, the project we just finished with uh, st thomas's hospital um, was around esophageal cancer so for, for people to understand the esophagus, effectively the food pipe, um, uh, cancer, cancer of the esophagus um, requires quite aggressive intervention um, with both neoadjuvant chemotherapy, surgery, uh, invariably on a, on, a, um, on a replacement of that esophagus, esophagectomy as we call it, and then adjuvant chemotherapy post, uh, post-surgery. Um, for those people who've had uh, chemotherapy uh, will know that you know it's quite an aggressive approach and has a whole host of other um, impacts uh, side effects on on all sorts of other areas but particularly around things like muscle mass quality of life physical activity and all those type of things and so I, I some it's a couple of years ago now about three years ago now I went in to present to the team at St Thomas's to talk to them about exercise and cancer um, and actually what, what what spawned off the back of that was this idea that w- what we would do is take a look at esophageal cancer um, because of because of the the, the issues of, of the treatment and also the outcome of esophageal cancer to see if it would make a difference and Janine Zilstra um, who was one of my PhD students who, who, who led the work on that 
um, it, it did an, an absolutely incredible job where what we did is we looked at prehabilitation. So we looked at uh, uh, exercise intervention, perioncology. So whilst they, whilst patients were undergoing chemotherapy, uh, they were, they were part of a, either part of a control group with standard care uh, or part of an intervention group where they did exercise um, with us um, all the way through to surgery um, and then post-surgery, uh, rehabilitation, post-surgery. And, and we're just about to publish the outcomes. But, I mean, the outcomes were in, in part expected, as, as we've seen with yeah. other research work around things like muscle mass, VO2 max, sort of aerobic capacity, functional capacity, um, health-related quality of life, et cetera. But also in some of our uh, tumour markers um, and our yeah. downstaging and tumour regression really are just – I mean, fantastic. I mean, we couldn't have asked for better results, to be honest with you. Wow. Um, yeah. And so, people, so don't put, people don't put that together, do they? They just think of the quality of life, but actually the disease itself can be reduced through an exercise intervention. And there's been previous studies on different types of cancer. Do you think it opens up a space to actually do more research on different types of cancer and the effect of the tumour reduction? I, well. I think absolutely is the answer to that. You know, I think, you know, you sort of mentioned it earlier, but, but it's around, I mean, sadly, we live in a life where it's ruled by economics. Um, you yeah. know, that's, capital, that's capitalism for us. But, you know, yeah. I think the, the thing is that there, there is a, an economic drive here as well as, well as, as, well as a health drive. Uh, and that is that if we can, if we can make our treatment pathways more efficacious, if we can make them more effective, um, th then what we can do is there's a whole host of, of, of areas that we can improve. So, you know, par example, for, for the, the patient undergoing treatment, we can reduce their interface with their GP and their, and their specialist team because they have, they have less side effects. Uh, they have a higher quality of life. They're much more positive as they go through it. Uh, we reduce the risks uh, during surgery um, and we very rapidly increased the, the acceleration. Some of the work that we did at London Oncology Centre was actually around uh, time in ICU and time in hospital. Um, and, and what we saw with some of that work is that, that we can accelerate uh, the, the process. So they, 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 the lower lengths of stay on ICU, incredibly expensive on ICU. Yeah. And, and also just physically and psychologically detrimental to be on ICU. Um, lower periods of time in hospital, so money saved there as well. And then actually post that, it's about re recurrence of, of either new primaries or recurrence of existing uh, cancer. We, we know our, our reduced from, from research, we know our reduced uh, post-treatment. Uh, post, um, post, um, and so therefore, you know, the, the whole pathway benefits from yeah. physical activity intervention, uh, both for the patient uh, for their families and the wider community, but also economically and for the NHS. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. And just before we finish off, I just this is still on the the research study because I think a lot of people will be wondering this, and perhaps the the work you do with the London Oncology Centre and their survivorship program. What what was that exercise in the research study? So what were they people actually doing? Because I think that's quite an intriguing. People often wonder, oh, what were they doing exercise wise? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and it probably brings us back to an early conversation around simplicity, um, yeah. and, and really, so there are two things about 
exercise. I think number one, it, which is absolutely crucial, is it is bespoke. It's individualized. And, and I think that's really important because everybody's journey through treatment, through surgery, through rehabilitation is going to be different. And and so what what the what, whilst you know, we, we, you know what the conversation has been fantastic because we've sort of covered all of this, but the yeah. plan itself, you know, th- th- there is a plan to it, but that plan should be flexible. And what you have to do is you have to flex, you know, so, you know, if somebody's got significant lymphedema, for example, then you may modify the type of activities that you're doing. Uh, if they've got a pick line in, then you're going to modify what it is that you're doing. Uh, post-surgery, it depends what the surgery is and where that surgery is. Modifications take place. All of those sort of things mean that, that it is what we do is we, we vary it according to the individual. But yeah. uh, upstream of that, really, what we're talking about is recommendations of physical activity for health. Um, and so that is 30 minutes of moderate intensity aerobic exercise on most days of the week. Added on top of that, strength strength training, uh, somewhere in the region of two sessions per week. And then, uh, then trying to be as physically active as possible. So effectively moving more, more often. Yeah. Um, but but keep, keeping it within those simple bounds is, number one, it's achievable. Number two is that we know that we get health uh, benefit from it. And actually now research work is showing really nicely that with uh, cancer patients, peri-treatment, pre-surgery, post-surgery, we have profound improvements in a whole variety of different areas, ranging from things like uh, adiposity, so, so fat mass, muscle mass, aerobic capacity, particularly big gains in strength that we can see related to this reduction in muscle mass that we often see with chemotherapy. So there are are real improvements, real observable improvements in physical capacity as well as health-related quality of life and also about about longevity. Yeah, that's brilliant. And I think, like you say, the from the summary from that is that the most one of the most important things is having a plan that's right for you but also looking outside of it in terms of social you know reducing social isolation having that um social side of things as well is as important as the physical side and the the psychological side um so lots to learn there yeah brilliant and like you say it's not rocket science sometimes it's just doing the basic things right and doing them well but actually even you know when you talk about the the level of health the level of exercise to just live a good healthier life even if you're going through your treatment the majority of the general public aren't actually hitting that and that's part of the problem and the messaging and the you know lifestyle changes that also we could have another podcast to talk about <laughs> <laughs> no no it's, it's true and, and and i think the interesting thing about that is because i mean it's, it's properly a behavior change yeah. Uh, for, for many people, because because they you know, we talk about that physically illiterate, you know, physical literacy is so important in this is that many people don't know what to do or how to do it. And that's why you, you know, and your team are so important, because what you, you just need that mentor, that guide, just to, because it is about confidence. Yeah. And much of this because, you know, it's, it, it's easy to do the wrong thing, but it's, it's not complex to do the right thing. And being guided by somebody who knows what they're doing can make such a big difference. Yeah. Absolutely. So one last question before we go on to, I've just got a couple of quick fire questions. I like finishing right. podcasts with quick fire. <laughs> oh, um, dear. 
<laughs> one last question and this is actually from I was talking to Rebecca Robinson who's um, a sports medicine doctor who you know very well and um, I've been in the Lake District a few times swimming with Rebecca recently um, but I had a chat with her and she's done some of our expert panels um, on our Q&A's this year but she actually asked the question she said she said ask Greg <laughs> not, not to put you on the spot but she says where do you see exercise physio physiology um, how do you see exercise physiology um, in the world in the future basically does that make sense? I think I've changed Rebecca's yeah. question. Yeah. Where do you well, see it um, in the future? Well, I, I think uh, the interesting one on that is that, look, I mean, I think that there is sports physiology and there is exercise physiology and they, they run along this continuum. And I think sometimes people get a little bit confused because as soon as you mention exercise to somebody, immediately think, oh, sport. Immediately yeah. think, oh, I've, I've got to run a marathon. I've got to wear spandex. I've got to belong to an expensive gym. <laughs> you know, and, it, and it, it couldn't be further from the truth. You know, what you have to think is it's the continuum. At one end of that continuum is inactivity. At the other end of that continuum is, is, is active, very active. Okay. Yeah. And, and to some extent, and, and, and to be honest with you, that, that's the physical activity spectrum. Beyond that then comes sport. So competition, training, all that sort of stuff comes beyond that. What we're talking about is becoming more active more often. That's really what it's yeah. about. It's about activity of daily living. It's walking was, instead of driving. You know, it's taking the stairs instead of the lift. All of those things is what we're talking I, about. I always say sitting less and moving more. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> and, and that's what yeah. it's about. So I think, you know, to some extent, exercise physiology, I think, you know, wh where I have seen it develop uh, dramatically is I think it's, uh, you know, for the, pertinent for this discussion is actually our understanding that 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 physiology and, and pathophysiology. So I think exercise physiology has sort of moved dramatically towards patho exercise pathophysiology, understanding disease and where exercise can have a, a, a beneficial effect and, and in intervention across the broad spectrum from from aging and frailty through to cardiac disease, you know, to cancer, to dementia, etc. And I think, you know, the future of that really is that what we, what we will see, and, and this is what we're developing currently, is this clinical exercise physiology specialist um, who will be able to work in that setting to support clinical patients, whatever uh, their clinical issue, and make sure that exercise is embedded in both their treatment and their daily lives. Brilliant. That would be the dream, wouldn't it? Yeah. And it's exciting that actually you do, you know, you think we are moving towards that in the future. So, yeah. Brilliant. Thanks for the question, Rebecca. <laughs> um, I think I'm glad had... it wasn't any harder. <laughs> I know. I could talk to you all day, Greg. It's absolutely fascinating. Like you said, we could deep dive into any of these topic areas. But I'm going to finish with just um, some quick fire questions because okay. I like to finish off the podcast. So there were a couple of personal ones, a couple that might be not as quick fire, but hopefully will be. So the first one, what is your favourite personal sporting moment? <laughs> oh my, I thought it was going to be a quick fire. Um, just, oh, God, that, that is so difficult to answer. Do you know, it's probably the most contemporary. So it's probably winning the Norseman Black, which was, Amazing. you know, just interesting enough. So winning the Norseman Black, and then just after that, just prior to lockdown last year, I was, um, I trained uh, uh, a friend of mine and we broke the world record for seven marathons on seven continents. Uh, last wow trip. well done which was pretty special which was a, a, an iconic challenge no doubt about it wow yeah that sounds awesome we'll have to do a podcast just on that so and that's what? quite interesting as well that goes ahead of your olympic achievements as well 
I, I, I guess because they're just, you know, they're, they're more of the time. I think, you know, it, yeah. was, it was 1992, the Barcelona Olympics was a long time ago. Um, <laughs> you know, but I, I, so thinking about it, probably the the single most memorable time was when I won silver medal at World Championships uh, in 1994. Uh, and the reason it was memorable is that my dad was there to watch. Oh, amazing. Yeah. So special memories and special support as well. Yeah, oh, definitely. Lovely. Brilliant. It's look good to get an insight into that. Um, so the <laughs> next one, not as quick fire, but they're definitely really good to do. So next one, because of exercise physiology and your, you know, your specialist area, what is your favorite way to recover? Hopefully not with a pint in the hand. <laughs> if you ask my little boy, it's with donuts. <laughs> um, I, I mean, that's, that's, you know, I think my favourite way is with my family. I think that's yeah. that's you know, it's just just chilling out. Again, it's not complex really. I think you know, it. I'd like to say you know, it's on a Caribbean beach, you know, in the sun with a pina colada in my hand. But um, <laughs> but actually, it, you know, it's just if we sometimes on a Saturday afternoon we'll have movie afternoon and we sit with the kids oh, uh, and nice. and we'll, we'll we'll put a movie up and everybody has a treat bowl. Um, and we get popcorn out and that sort of stuff. And I think that's, the, that's a, a wonderful thing to do. Sounds like a perfect Saturday night, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Brill. Um, so one bit of advice you would give anybody taking on a new challenge. So just one bit of advice. Take the first step. Oh, love it. Absolutely love that. Spot on. Is that, <laughs> we're going to stop there. <laughs> so we, that's all you need. Just, just take the first, commit, take the first step. Because one, once you start, uh, it, it will be an adventure. Brilliant. One final question, and this is re very, very relevant to the current time. Okay. Who's going to win tomorrow night, England or Denmark? <laughs> Wait, so I, I, you know, I'm compelled to say England, uh, but actually, yeah. you know, watch, watching them against Ukraine, I just thought they were imperious. Um, I think I think they're in the right place. I think you know Kane has got his goal scoring streak back on. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I thought they looked great the other night. And I think that whilst uh, Denmark look amazing, uh, I think England's are, they're, they're riding a crest of a wave. So I, my money's on England. Good. Are we excited? And are we able to say, yeah, it's coming home or is it too soon? <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? Everyone keeps asking me that. And I think, you know what? I think, I think as with everything in life, you've got to believe it. Otherwise, yeah. you know, if, if, you, if, you, if you don't think it's coming home, you won't watch the match. I agree. You know, yeah, I no think point. It, you've got to believe it's coming home. I think again, it comes back to being so scared to have that hope about England because of the fear <laughs> of disappointment. But we just got to ride the wave with them, ride that positivity, and go with it, hoping that they're going to win tomorrow night. Yeah. Enjoy it while it's while it's on. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, that's the perfect way to end our Move Against Cancer podcast. So, thank you so much, Greg, for your time and your incredible knowledge and insight into your life and your work. It's been absolutely amazing to talk to you. It's an absolute pleasure. And thanks for having me on. Wow. Where do I even start to sum up that episode? I just absolutely loved talking to Greg. And I'm sure, as you probably heard, we could have probably de deep dived into a number of those topic areas and just talked for hours. He is one incredibly fascinated person with a really unique and inspirational journey, both personally and professionally. In this episode, we spoke about Greg's passion for sport and physical activity and how his Olympic dreams and elite sport ran in parallel to his education and learning, something that the young, um, inspiring athletes can also learn from Greg in that area. 
We spoke about his charity work supporting celebrities to complete extraordinary challenges and how if we actually put our mind to it, anything is really possible. We spoke about the importance of goal setting, creating a sport support team around you and how important exercise and physical activity are is in all aspects of the cancer care pathway. There is so much to look forward to in the future in terms of exercise physiology and the cancer care pathway. So really watch this space. Thank you so much to Greg for taking his time um, to do this episode with us. We hoped you enjoyed it as much as we did. We will look forward to seeing you all soon for series two of the Move Against Cancer podcast. I'm now off, as I do every episode, for a cup of tea and to look for my next challenge. Thank you, Greg, for your inspiration. Mm-hmm.